Good morning. This morning, I'll be reading from 1 Colossians in the English Standard Version. If you need a Bible to keep or to borrow, please um, be aware that there are some on the back table for you to borrow. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. We're spending this Advent season every Sunday meditating on a different classic Christmas carol, trying to capture uh, the messages, the themes of hope in, in these songs that some of us have been singing our entire lives, and maybe some of them are new to you. I have a feeling, though, that today's carol might be new to at least half the people in the room. However, it is maybe the oldest Christmas carol that we have. Uh, today's carol of the Father's Love Begotten is, is literally ancient. Its words date back to the 300s. The melody we sang is actually medieval. It's, 11th, it's 12th century plain song. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the world began to be, he is Alpha and Omega, he the source, the ending he, speaking of Jesus Christ. These words come to us from Aurelius Clemens Prudentius. He lived in the year, eight, uh, he, he was born in 348 AD, and he lived to about 413. He was a Roman. He was a poet. He was from Spain. So his life uh, spanned the lives of very well-known ancient church fathers like Jerome and Athanasius and John Chrysostom and Augustine. And actually, he lived just after a man named Arius, whose ideas about Christianity were declared her heretical during that time. Uh, more about him later. But Aurelius Prudentius's words poetically express what the Bible had claimed about Jesus of Nazareth. Somehow, Jesus was, according to the New Testament, fully God and fully human. Along with the Father and the Spirit, he was deserving of worship. That seems to be what the New Testament proclaimed. And the doctrine of the Trinity... 
Um, the idea that God is one, that there is only one God, but he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, is of prime importance in Christianity. And I'm not going to try and give you an illustration of the Trinity. Because every time somebody does that in the last 2,000 years, they get labeled a heretic. So forget about it. We, we just have to accept that, that, that the Trinity is without trying to illustrate it. Uh, more about that in a bit. But the doctrine of the Trinity is of the most importance in Christianity itself. And actually, the early church struggled and, and persevered to understand this and to protect it and to clarify it for people. And during those early centuries, when the nature of Jesus Christ was a contentious matter. Uh, this carol's words reflect the critical importance of what the New Testament authors had taught. Uh, the Trinity is not simply a doctrinal point. It is what distinguishes Christianity from every major religion in history. The Trinity distinguishes Christianity. And what I hope you'll see today is it's not only foundational to Christianity, it is ultimately personal. When you apply the doctrine of the Trinity, it becomes intimately personal. And it teaches us that God has invested his whole self to save us. The Trinity means that God completely invested himself to save you. Christmas proclaims that God was and still is all in for you. Now this carol of the Father's love begotten, it, it really echoes what the Bible says about Christ's relationship to God. As Caitlin read for us from Colossians chapter one, the apostle Paul highlighted the divine nature of Jesus of Nazareth. Speaking of Jesus, Paul wrote that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And Paul went on to write in Colossians chapter one, for in him, speaking of Jesus, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now don't think that Jesus is God's firstborn, as Paul uses that specific word. Don't think of Jesus as God's firstborn in the sense that Jesus, like your children, or my children had a beginning, like I had a beginning as the son of my parents. That's not what the word firstborn here means, and that's what has tripped people up for almost 2,000 years. Because as you keep reading in the passage, you read other profound statements like, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, that all things were created through him, by him, and for him then it cannot possibly mean that Jesus had a beginning like everybody else's son. Or if you would put it a different way, as the author of Hebrews did, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, it's talking about Jesus as the Son of God. And he says, when God brings the firstborn, there's the same word, 
When God brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, from cover to cover, Old Testament and New Testament, nobody at any time is permitted to worship anyone or anything but God alone. You can't worship angels. You can't worship people. Only God. God is one, the Hebrew prophet said. So that's abundantly clear in Scripture. And yet, Jesus, in his lifetime, welcomed worship. He didn't tell people like all the angels did and like the apostle Paul did, stop worshiping me, stop it. He welcomed it when people worshiped him. Check it out. And as you read the New Testament letters, the authors of the New Testament encouraged people to worship and treat Jesus as the ancient Jews treated the one, the God, I am. A serious look at Scripture cannot conclude that Jesus is a created being. But as the Nicene Creed said, during the lifetime of this hymn's writer, Jesus is very God of very God. So words like firstborn here is used to mean something like Jesus is supreme over all creation, supreme over all things. And actually, the gospel accounts, especially the gospel of Luke and John's gospel, they hint heavily at the Trinity, because you don't see that word in Scripture. But the Gospels hint very heavily at the concept of the Trinity, just like Genesis 1 does. If you go back to the very beginning, the first three verses of the Bible say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said let there be light. And there was light. You see, right in the beginning, God's word, his spoken word, and his spirit were present and were active in creating everything from nothing. And in the same way, in the incarnation, though Mary was a virgin, a child was conceived in her void womb very much in the same way. Look at how Gabriel put it in Luke chapter 1. When Gabriel visited, uh, when, when Gabriel, the angel, visited Mary, he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then finally, Matthew's gospel records Jesus' last words to his disciples, that they were to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God's three-in-one nature shows us something very important. Unlike every other God in every other religion, the God of the Bible is unique. The Trinity teaches us that unlike any other God, this God doesn't need us. He is all-sufficient and self-sufficient in himself. The Trinity then in creation and in incarnation reveals something else that's very surprising. 
although God does not need us, he wants us. Although he shares community, community and love and knowledge within himself completely, he wants us. He created us. And then we went foul and he did everything he could and desired to do to save us. Creation and the incarnation, as we meditate on it at Christmas time, reveal to us that God was all in for you and for me. And this is why doctrine is so important. This is why doctrine is important to clarify it, to protect it, so that we can apply it and make it real for our everyday life. Doctrine affects every aspect of our being. The concept and the reality of the Trinity bears weight on every aspect of your life, on how you work, on your sexuality, on your relationships, on how you manage conflict, on how you raise your children, on how you take care of your aging parents. We pray for missionaries. We should pray for people who are called to study at the highest levels, to study and teach and clarify biblical doctrine. It is of the primary essence that it be clarified and protected so that people like you and me can apply it in our lives every day. So this carol not only echoes the words of the New Testament, what the New Testament authors said about Jesus' relationship to God, but the carol also echoes what the early church and the church fathers for centuries said about Christ's relationship to God as Christianity was new in the world and they were just trying to figure out everything. They were hanging on passages like John's um, opening remarks in his gospel. In the beginning was the word. There you have again, the word, the spoken word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. See, similar language to Colossians. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. John went on to say later in that, in that chapter that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so this concept of Jesus having two natures, fully God, fully human, is a mystery to us. It has always been a mystery. But the faithful church, the faithful body of Christ throughout the centuries has trusted it by faith and protected it. Now, Arianism uh, comes from a man named Arius who lived just before the author of today's Christmas Carol. He was a professing Christian Arius, but he believed... Uh, influenced heavily by the philosophies of his day and the centuries before him. Uh, he taught that and, and debated that Christ was the highest created being. And his idea that he was not God, but was the highest creature that God had ever created. Uh, and his ideas gained momentum in the world. Um, his ideas are still alive today. Arianism is still alive today in some religious groups. The Council of Nicaea in the year 325 
was when a bunch of leaders got together, church leaders got together, and through a lot of contentious, difficult debate, clarified who Jesus is. Even the recently converted Emperor Constantine got himself involved, for better or for worse. Um, actually called the whole thing and, and was, actually showed up for it. But the result was what we now call the Nicene Creed from the year 325. And in that creed, this is what they decided. This is what, now they didn't invent the doctrine of the Trinity. They didn't invent the deity of Christ. They simply simply clarified what the scriptures had always said and what the church had always believed. It's usually during doctrinal and philosophical conflicts that we gain clarity because we have to do the hard work to try and understand what we mean and what the scriptures say. It's not that this stuff was invented 300 years after Jesus. It was clarified 300 years after Jesus. So anyway, the the Nicene Creed uh, says this, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, listen to this, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And Aurelius Prudentius's poetry, decades after this statement, would reflect this doctrine. As we sang earlier, Christ to thee, with God the Father, and O Holy Ghost to thee, hymn and chant and high thanksgiving and unwearied praises be. The hymn calls us to worship the Father and the Son and the Spirit, highlighting the doctrine of the Trinity, highlighting the doctrine of Christ's divinity and humanity. Now, if you're lost in all of this, if you're like, I have no idea what in the world you're talking about, Brian, okay, it's fine. If you remember anything from today and from all of this, this is what I want you to remember. The incarnation that the creator of the universe became a human being and was born. And that we call that, we celebrate that on Christmas. We call this Christmas. We call this Advent. This whole idea of the incarnation shows us that God was all in to save you. Father, Son, and Spirit invested his full self to reconcile you back to him. That's what I want you to remember. Father, Son, and Spirit were all, are all active in God visiting us to save us. Oh, that birth forever blessed when the virgin full of grace by the Holy Ghost conceiving bore the savior of our race. God is personally all in for you. Are you all in for him? This is where the Trinity gets very practical. Are you all in for your creator? What do you say about Christ? We've talked about what the Bible says, what the early church said. What do you say about who Jesus Christ is? Who do you believe he is? Examining the historical evidence will lead you, as C.S. Lewis once said, to either dismiss Jesus as a lunatic or a devil, or convince you to agree with what Christianity has been saying for 2,000 years, 
that he is your God and that you should worship him and upend your entire life to get into agreement with what he has said, with who he is, with what his priorities are. Now, I sympathize with you if you're having a difficult time accepting that Jesus is God and that although God is one, he exists in three distinct persons. I sympathize with the difficulty to accept this. The idea that God would humble himself to become one of us. Let me be more personal than that. That God would humble himself to be with you is maybe the most hard, the most difficult thing to accept. That God wants to be with you. It's the very opposite of how we all deal with conflict, isn't it? To identify with and bear with and serve and die for the people who have deeply hurt you, that is too great for us to accept. That is too disturbing for us to accept. But that's what sin does. That's what our natural inclination to distrust our creator does to us. It limits your imagination of what is possible. It robs you of true hope. Will you accept that God's nature is what he says it is? Will you accept God's nature for who he says he is rather than reinventing him based on who you say you are? Every, every, every heresy... Every off-the-mark teaching for the last 2,000 years, I believe, has ultimately come for people trying to reinvent God because of how they personally feel and how they view themselves. Will you accept God's nature for who he says he is? Jesus himself actually said this, I and the Father are one. When one of his disciples Philip asked him, Lord, show us the Father. The night before he was executed, Jesus said, don't you know me by now, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. You don't have to be any more clear than that. The Emperor Constantine thought that the conflict over the identity of Jesus was so important that he attended the Council of Nicaea himself and paid the expenses for people to travel there. When the American president has something really critical to do and needs to meet with somebody, he doesn't send one of his ambassadors or secretaries. He shows up himself. Well, God didn't send his chief advisor. He didn't send an archangel. He came himself. You were so important to him. We were so important to him. This world's brokenness and sin and darkness and tragedy and oppression were so important to him that he came himself to make things right. And so the carol's title emphasizes this beautifully, of the Father's love begotten. Jesus was of the Father's love brought to us, conceived in the void womb of the Virgin Mary. It was because of love that God fully invested himself, Father and Son and Spirit, into human history, the Creator becoming a creature in order to make things right. 
That's why the most famous Bible verse is, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that who should ever believe in him in Jesus should not perish, but have everlasting life. Christmas proclaims that God was and is and will always be personally all in for you. Now you be all in for him. You enter into that relationship. You share the joy and the wisdom and the knowledge and the love that God has in himself. He came to share it with you. Now you receive it. Accept, maybe for the first time this Advent season, accept God's nature for who he says he is and stop reinventing him based on your own struggles, based on who and what has influenced you and how you're feeling. Accept God for who he says he is, and you will never regret that. Receive the love of a father who adopts you. Rejoice in the forgiveness of a savior who died for you. Recommit every endeavor, every task, every relationship, every plan. Recommit it all to the spirit who guides you and transforms you evermore and evermore. Let's pray. Our great God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ and our life-giving spirit, we worship you. We confess to you that we perceive you as we want to, based on our own shortcomings, based on our own limited imagination and hopeless expectations. We confess that we have reinvented you and reinvented you again and again, not only throughout history, but in the very concourse of our own independent lives. Father, help us to accept who you say you are and embrace you as you are by looking at your son. May we rejoice in him. May we believe in him. May we draw others to him for his glory. Amen.